When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another Saturday night that I ain't got nobody. I got some money cause I just got paid. Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanthi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, I talked about how soul legend Sam Cooke began his career as gospel legend Sam Cooke, and how he pivoted to secular music. And in the wake of multiple Oscar nominations for the 2020 film One Night in Miami, which reimagines numerous aspects of Cooke's career, I began a fact check of the film, which compresses multiple years worth of his accomplishments into early 1964. As Sam Cooke entered the 1960s, he was about to enter a new phase of his artistry. After Wonderful World brought Sam Cooke closer to the top 10 on the pop charts than he had been in years, his new label, RCA, knew they had to step up. And they finally did, three months later, when Cook's next single got all the way to number two on both the R&B and the pop charts. But really, it was Cook who stepped up. He had written an ingenious, deceptively deep pop song. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. Chain Gang was a jaunty, joyous tune disguising a truly despairing topic, prison labor, and, by implication, the mass incarceration of African Americans. Cook's friend and fellow touring singer Lou Rawls later said that Cook wrote the song after seeing an actual chain gang toiling in the hot sun by the road as they drove past. Cook built the beat of the song out of the metallic clank of prisoners' shackles, and from the who, ha, an actual chain gang might chant to pass the time. Can't you hear them saying, I'm going home one of these days. I'm going home, see my Chain Gang brought a social conscience to Cook's music. In 1960, well ahead of the peak of the civil rights movement, and it expressed sorrow and regret even as it made you tap your foot. Like Wonderful World, Chain Gang set a template for Cook in the 60s, soulful pop songs with bright, infectious melodies, an alternative to the new Motown sound. Sam had made his name in the late 50s with a mix of sweet, even sappy balladry and what you might call supper club music. Now, his lyrical themes would still be mature, at times profound, but the music was spry and youthful, even when he was singing about heartache, as on his 1961 hit, Cupid. Cupid, draw back your 
Another single Sam Cooke penned by himself, Cupid, became one of his most acclaimed songs. All Music's Bill Janowitz would later call it, quote, a perfect pop song that combined Latin, R&B, jazz, and mainstream pop elements. Rolling Stone ranked it among its 500 greatest songs of all time. It was also a solid crossover hit. Its number 17 peak on the Hot 100 was actually a little higher than its number 20 peak on the R&B chart. Unusual for Cook to this point. Now fully established on RCA, Sam Cooke would remain with the label for the rest of his career. But even before he left Keen Records, Cooke was laying the groundwork for a label of his own. In 1959, Sam had heard that his former gospel group, The Soul Stirrers, had been dropped by Specialty Records. Cook offered to write and produce music for them, including their new vocalist, Johnny Taylor. And Sam even proposed to release the new recordings, like Wade in the Water himself. Jesus is called. So, Sam and his business and songwriting partner, J.W. Alexander, the same man who had advised him on the launch of his publishing company, began forming a label just to record the Soul Stirrers. They called it SAR Records, spelled S-A-R, which stood for Sam, Alex, and Roy. It was named after Sam Cooke. J.W. Alexander, and Silas Roy Crane, Cook's former mentor and ongoing advisor from the Soul Stirrers. From the start, before competing label Motown had really scored any hits yet, Cook envisioned the SAR label as a haven for black performers. Indeed, in One Night in Miami, the fictionalized Cook, played by Leslie Odom Jr., makes this very argument to the challenge posed by his friend Malcolm X. Sam, you have one of the most effective outlets of us all. Man, your voice! You're not using it to help the cause, bro. Hell, I'm not. I got the masters to my songs. I started a label. I'm producing tons of black artists. Don't you think? My determining, my creative and business destiny is every bit as inspiring to people as you standing up on a podium trying to piss them off. In real life, Cook really did see his work at SAR as a form of advocacy. He was making his former bandmates in the Soul Stirrers new again. One of their most inventive recordings on SAR was a track Cook and Alexander wrote and arranged for them called Stand By Me Father. In truth, the bones of Stand By Me Father were not new. Cook and Alexander were adapting a gospel standard from the turn of the century, simply titled Stand By Me. It had been written by the legendary minister and gospel composer Charles Albert Tindley. He wrote the song that later became We Shall Overcome, by the way. 
And it was recorded by dozens of artists. For example, here's a recording of Stand By Me from the 40s by gospel singer and proto-rock legend Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I'm crossing Jordan River, stand by me. Jesus' breast will be my pillow, stand by me. In Cook's and Alexander's hands, their interpolation, Stand By Me Father, changed from a gospel hymn to something closer to a pop ballad with a very memorable refrain. Oh, I want you to stand by. Does that refrain sound familiar? Ben E. King formerly of The Drifters, attributes his biggest solo hit ever to both Charles Tindley's venerable gospel hymn and especially the interpolation Sam Cooke came up with for The Soul Stirrers. King adapted that refrain and, working with songwriting partners Mike Lieber and Jerry Stoller, turned it into the immortal 1961 smash Stand By Me. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Cook's label would have an even greater impact on the sound of pop after he signed a family band, the Womack Brothers, in 1961. Led by the soon-to-be legendary vocalist Bobby Womack, the Womacks renamed themselves the Valentinos and scored a quick hit on SAR with Lookin' for a Love, which hit number eight on the R&B chart in 1962. While the artists on SAR were benefiting from Sam Cooke's production savvy, Sam's own recording career was hitting its stride. By 1962, he was the second best-selling act on RCA Records, after Elvis Presley. Cook was flaunting his versatility. On the one hand, he could score with party records, like his classic number one R&B, number seven pop hit, Twistin' the Night Away, as well as the number four R&B, number 17 pop hit, Having a Party. We're having a party Dancing to the music And then, on the other hand, Sam was also recording ever more deeply felt soul ballads, like his slow dance classic, Bring It On Home To Me, a number two R&B, number 13 pop hit. Bring your sweet loving, bring it on home to me, yeah, 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 yeah. As with Chain Gang two years earlier, Bring It On Home To Me was a polished pop-slash-R&B song that was more profound than it first appeared, which makes another scene in One Night in Miami more than a little unfair. Here, Kingsley Ben-Adir's Malcolm X 
is making his argument to Sam Cooke by playing Cooke's records and savaging them for their shallowness. That is why, Brother Sam, this movement that we are in is called a struggle. Because we are fighting for our lives. <laughs> and what words are we hearing from you, brother? Mmm, Mr. Soul. Darling, you send me. I know you send me. Or maybe this one. Darling, you. I love you, 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 I love you. I love you. Oh, sentimental reason. Wow, Sam, your music is deep, brother. The thing is, Sam's music was deep. Malcolm's implication here is that through 1964, when this scene takes place, Sam Cooke had been recording nothing but pablum, which, as my Slate colleague Jack Hamilton points out in his article on One Night in Miami, is wrong on at least two counts. First, Malcolm is playing songs by Sam that date back six to seven years. Never mind the fact that You Send Me was a more innovative hit than Malcolm is giving it credit for in this scene. And second, by leaping back from 1964 to 1957, this imaginary Malcolm X harangue ignores Cook's hits during those seven years, like Chain Gang and Bring It On Home To Me, and the social conscience that animated them. Sam took inspiration from sources Malcolm would have found quite profound. Odetta, often called the voice of the civil rights movement, and the woman Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the queen of American folk music, was an inspiration to numerous folk, gospel, soul, and pop artists in the 50s and 60s. Among those inspired artists was folk luminary Joan Baez, who covered this Odetta arrangement of the post-Civil War spiritual O Freedom at Dr. King's March on Washington in 1963. And she also inspired Sam Cooke, who keyed into one specific line in the song. And before I'll be In his summer 1962 hit, Bring It On Home To Me, a full year before Baez sang O oh Freedom at the March, Cook recontextualizes that line in the guise of a love song. You know I'll always be your slave. This allusion offers ample evidence that Cook was aware of both social justice movements and the folk scene well before 1964. 
By taking inspiration from Odetta, you might say Cook had a thing or two in common with this Odetta fan, a white boy from Minnesota turned New York folky. Well, in my time of dying, that thought because we will come back to this young gentleman ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty wondery and tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast once upon a beat join host dj fuch and his trusty turntable baby scratch as they deliver remixes of fables and folk tales rhythm and rhymes and fun spins on classics as old as time Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Another Saturday night that I ain't got nobody. In 1963, Sam Cooke had another watershed year with highs and lows and ever greater diversity in his output. In the spring, he scored another top 10 pop number one R&B smash with his danceable yet ruminative song, Another Saturday Night, a party song about not having anyone to party with. Then, in a flex, Cook's follow-up hit was a spin on the decades-old story song Frankie and Johnny, an oddly sprightly murder ballad that had been recorded by everyone from Louis Armstrong to Johnny Cash. In the 60s, it would become a top 40 hit for both Brooke Benton and Elvis Presley. But the biggest hit version of all was Cook's. Frankie and Johnny were sweethearts. At least that's the way the story goes. Sam's version of Frankie and Johnny reached number 14 pop, number 4 R&B in the late summer of 63. And then his follow-up to that single was from yet another subgenre, a run through the Willie Dixon blues standard Little Red Rooster. I got a little red rooster too lazy to crow for days. Recorded for his lightly conceptual concept album, Night Beat, Sam Cooke's take on Rooster was a strutting soul record with jazzy percussion. 
In the fall of 63, Cook took Little Red Rooster to number 11 pop, number two R&B. Again, the highest charting version of that classic tune. Alongside this string of hits, Cook was touring relentlessly, honing his already formidable chops as one of the most dynamic stage presences of his generation. And he was living out his principles by refusing to play separate shows for white and black audiences, even in the Deep South. The highlight of his year in live performance came early, in January, when Cook performed for a predominantly black crowd in Miami at the Harlem Square Club. It was a gritty performance for an enraptured audience, as in this moment when he turned his favorite Nat King Cole standard from light jazz into a boisterous sing-along jam. Fans who were not at the venue that night would not hear this Miami recording for more than two decades. It was posthumously issued on LP in 1985. In 1963, the Harlem Square Club show was a reminder that, even as he was actively courting a white pop audience, Sam Cooke was still a master in a black room, able to code switch deftly. Now considered Cooke's best live recording, Live at the Harlem Square Club 1963 frequently ranks on all-time greatest album lists, like Rolling Stones. Perhaps all of this relentless activity helped Cook move on from the tragedies that befell him. Even during his rise to fame, Sam had lost people in his life. In November 1958, while en route from St. Louis to Greenville, Sam's convertible smashed into an idled truck. Cook, singer Lou Rawls, and guitarist Cliff White were all hospitalized, but Cook's driver, Ed Cunningham, was killed. Another car crash in 1959 killed Sam's first wife, Dolores. Even though she and Sam had already been divorced, and he was by then remarried to Barbara, Cook paid for Dolores' funeral expenses. But 1963 brought the greatest tragedy of all. In June, at Sam's home in Los Angeles, his 18-month-old son, Vincent, wandered away from his mother and their housekeeper, fell into their swimming pool, and drowned. Sam was inconsolable, but also incommunicative. Friends like Lou Rawls and J.W. Alexander could not get Sam to open up. Cook simply kept touring and recording, and his sadness came out in the music. When the moody and bluesy Nightbeat album came out later that summer, an unmistakable melancholy infused songs like Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, I Lost Everything, Mean Old World, and Lost and Lookin'. I'm lost and a lookin' for my baby Lord knows my baby ain't around 
Still, however much he repressed his pain, Sam was at the peak of his artistry going into 1964. He began the year recording what would turn out to be his final studio album, Ain't That Good News. Yet again, Cook was finding clever ways to infuse his pop with the history of African-American song. The album's title track, which we played you at the top of the show, Baby's coming home tomorrow Ain't that news? Man, ain't that news? was a kind of down-home, southern-flavored R&B based on a venerable black spiritual that dated to the 19th century. Ain't dat good news. I'm gonna lay down this world, gonna shoulder up my cross, gonna take it home to my Jesus, ain't that good news. As I noted earlier, Sam Cooke's Good News was the single he had on the charts the week in February 1964 that he went to Miami to watch his friend Cassius Clay defeat Sonny Liston to become world heavyweight champion. Good news indeed. Said she wants me all to herself. Ain't that good news? Man, ain't that news? The song was at number 13 on Billboard's Hot 100 that week, on its way to a number 11 peak. But the song at number one on the chart that week was a different phenomenon entirely. February 1964 was famously when the Beatles came to America kicking off the British invasion. Cassius Clay had his own run-in with the group that month, meeting the Beatles in Miami the week before his Sonny Liston fight, and taking a series of now-famous staged press photos of the soon-to-be champ pretending to knock out the Fab Four. Perhaps appropriately, then, the British invasion also comes up in One Night in Miami. Eli Goray's Cassius Clay brings up his recent meeting with the Beatles, and Malcolm X notes, scornfully, yet again, that Sam Cooke is pandering to a pop audience now obsessed with a fad. That's when Leslie Odom's Sam Cooke tells his own British invasion story. I invested in the British invasion. I have these protégés, Valentinos, five Womack brothers. The youngest one, Bobby, wrote this song, It's All Over Now. The band records it as fantastic, all over the R&B charts. It even went to number 94 on Billboard's Hot 100. Then I get a call from England. One of these British bands wants to record a cover version. The Beatles? Nah, Cash, they call themselves the Rolling Stones. I like the Muddy Water song. Exactly. So Bobby's like, you know, no damn way, man. That's our song, man. But I get the final say. I give the Rolling Stones permission to record it. <laughs> and the Rolling Stones version of the song goes all the way to number one. Not on the R&B charts, pop charts. But of course, you know, once this version of the song gets big, Bobby's version just disappears. It falls off the R&B charts, it's just gone. So of course, Bobby's crushed. Six months later, that first royalty check comes in. My company owns the rights to the song. That means every time some white girl buys a copy of that single, she put money into my pockets, our pockets. 
White boys out there touring around, they didn't even know they working for us. Bobby's like, the Rolling Stones want to cover any more versions of my songs? <laughs> so, okay. Hit Parade is a show about the charts, and we can't let this scene go without a bit of fact-checking. The root of the story is true. Bobby Womack, leading his brothers in The Valentinos, did indeed write and record the original It's All Over Now. And if there's one chart position Kemp Powers' script gets right, it's that the song did indeed reach number 94 on the Hot 100. What about that other stat, that the young Rolling Stones took the song all the way to number one? Well, they did, but in England, not in America. The Stones' cover of Womack's song topped the UK chart in July 1964. In the US, the Stones had not yet become chart dominators, and It's All Over Now only reached number 26 in late September of 64. It would take one more single, Time Is On My Side, to get the Stones a top 10 American hit. Also, this claim that the Stones' It's All Over Now KO'd Bobby Womack's original from the R&B chart, that's pure fantasy. In fact, the Valentino's version reached its R&B chart peak of number 21 in early September 1964, just two weeks before the Stones version reached its Hot 100 peak. Oh, and finally, please note all of these dates. Neither the Valentino's version nor the Stones' cover of It's All Over Now was on the charts, really even existed, in February of 64. So, yeah, a lot of imaginary chart stats from Mr. Powers. But honestly, this tall tale of the Valentinos and the Stones is not one night in Miami's most extreme bit of dramatic license. That comes a few minutes later, when Malcolm X delivers the crushing blow in his debate with Sam Cooke by playing him one more record by Bob Dylan. You know, I was thinking about this song I heard on the radio the other day, Sam. It made me think of you. Turns out it's pretty popular. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer mm. is mm. blowing mm. in the wind. Mm. I just love those lyrics. That really gets you thinking, don't it? It didn't make you angry? Why would it? This is a white boy from Minnesota 
who has nothing to gain from writing a song that speaks more to the struggles of our people, more to the movement than anything that you have ever penned in your life, brother. Being vocally in the struggles bad for business? Why has this song gone higher on the pop charts than anything you got out? Let's break down the chart aspects first. Higher on the pop charts? Not in 1964. And not that version of Blowin' in the Wind. The version of Dylan's masterful composition that became a pop smash was the cover by folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary. Their Blowin' in the Wind reached number two on the Hot 100 in August 1963, the same month as the March on Washington. How many roads must a man walk down before they call him a man? Bob Dylan's Blowin' in the Wind written in 1962 and released on his 1963 album The Freewheelin' Bob Dylan, was issued as a single around the same time as Peter, Paul, and Mary's. Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in But Dylan's version didn't chart. He wouldn't score a Hot 100 hit of any kind until Subterranean Homesick Blues in 1965. So, yes, Dylan's song went higher on the charts than anything Sam Cooke released in 1963 or 64, but not Dylan's recording, and not, at the moment, our cinematic Malcolm X is eviscerating Cooke's career. But... That's not even the greatest departure from fact in this scene. Not only was Cook familiar with Dylan's song, he'd already been inspired by it. And by February of 64, he'd already written and recorded a song based on it. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer. Sam Cook loved blowing in the wind. And if there's one true thing in the movie's Malcolm X diatribe, it's that Dylan's song did bother Sam. Quote, He was so carried away with the message, writes Cook biographer Peter Goralnik, and the fact that a white boy had written it, that he was almost ashamed not to have written something like that himself. Unquote. The fact is, Sam Cooke had been thinking he needed to write his own Blowin' in the Wind as far back as the March on Washington. Goralnik writes that Cooke was fired up by Mahalia Jackson's presence alongside Dr. King, including the moment she sang How I Got Over. That same year, Cook and his SAR Records team had even recorded the Soul Stirrers singing the Black Spiritual that King referenced in his I Have a Dream speech, Free at Last. So, in December 1963, while preparing material for his Ain't That Good News LP, Cook wrote a song 
to his own guitar accompaniment. He played it for J.W. Alexander a couple of days after Christmas, saying he didn't even know where it had come from, that maybe it had come to him in a dream. It was monumentally different from anything Sam had done before. Monumental, period. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Of A Change Is Gonna Come, Peter Goralnik writes, quote, It was a song both more personal and more political. A song that vividly brought to mind a gospel melody, but that didn't come from any spiritual number in particular. One that was suggested both by the civil rights movement and by the circumstances of Sam's own life. Unquote. Cook was very proud of it. I think my daddy will be proud, he told J.W. Alexander. Beyond the sky, it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. As Goralnik points out, there is no one antecedent to a change is gonna come. It doesn't sound like Odetta, doesn't mimic Dylan, even though it is indebted to Dylan's spirit. Its words are deceptively simple, not straining for poetry, but deeply poetic nonetheless. Quote, it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Or, I go to the movie, and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me, don't hang around. Or, there been times that I thought I couldn't last for long, but now I think I'm able to carry on. Unquote. It was perhaps the most succinct vision in song of how racism is lived. Moreover, Cook's decision to have his arranger, Renee Hall, orchestrate the song made the finished product sound not at all like a folk song. It sounded more like another hero, Nat King Cole, on ornately arranged classics like Nature Boy. And while we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me. And even though Cook's masterpiece followed Dylan's and the March on Washington, it came early in the lineage of Black Pride and Black Power anthems, one of the first civil rights songs to be so self-reflective. Cook was signaling the direction these anthems would soon take. He wrote it just weeks before Nina Simone wrote her own deeply personal, fiercely angry, and oddly jaunty Mississippi Goddamn, a song she debuted at Carnegie Hall, calling it, quote, a show tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Here was the thing about A Change Is Gonna Come. 
It was recorded in January 1964 and about to be released on the Ain't That Good News album, the night Sam Cooke spent in a hotel room in real life with Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X. It is, as my Slate colleague Jack Hamilton points out, a distortion of the record to claim that Cook was only recording apolitical material by 1964, and that he needed to be shaken up by Malcolm X to be inspired to do so. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. To be fair, Malcolm and company might not have known the song existed because the album was not out yet. Ain't That Good News was released on March 1st. And anyway, Cook had placed A Change Is Gonna Come on side B of the album. It wasn't intended as one of the singles. On the other hand, just a fortnight before the Clay Liston fight, Cook had performed the song on NBC's The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, complete with an orchestra. It was, reportedly, a titanic performance, but sadly, no tape of The Tonight Show performance exists. So this was the odd netherworld in which A Change Is Gonna Come existed. Sam Cooke knew it was the best thing he'd ever written, but given its complexity, he performed it once, live. For the rest of 1964, the Ain't That Good News album spun off further hits, like Good Times, Get in the groove and let the good time roll and Cook's cover of the Tennessee Waltz. I was dancing with my baby to that Tennessee Waltz. But A Change Is Gonna Come remained an album cut. Sam did manage to achieve one more personal goal that year. In July of 64, more than six years after he, quote, bombed at the Copacabana nightclub, he returned to the Copa and played a rapturously received set that was issued as a live album later that year. It closed a career chapter for Cook, a final triumph. The At The Copa album was the last Sam Cooke LP issued in his lifetime. On December 11, 1964, in a senseless incident that remains shrouded in mystery to this day, Sam Cooke was killed at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles. Bertha Franklin, the motel's manager, claimed that she shot him in self-defense when a drunken cook was moving to attack her. Cook's family and supporters have questioned the incident ever since the case was investigated and closed by the L.A. authorities. 
in the popular imagination, Cook's death sits alongside the 1990s murders of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls among the most disputed deaths of a black musical luminary. And as with those future stars, hundreds of thousands of fans lined the streets to pay their respects to Cook in the days just after his death. Also, like those rappers, Cook left behind material that would be released in the immediate wake of his passing. One month after his death, RCA issued a single that spawned two new chart hits. The A-side of the single, Shake, was the title track of what would become Cook's first posthumous album. Shake was an exuberant dance record in the tradition of past Cook hits like Twistin' the Night Away, Having a Party, and Another Saturday Night. It reached number seven on the Hot 100 in late February 1965, his highest charting pop hit since Chain Gang reached number two in 1960. And then, in early March, the single's B-side reached its peak on the chart, number 31, just barely a top 40 hit. What was that B-side? It was a change is gonna come. Sam Cooke's masterpiece was finally a hit, just three months after his death. What else could the song be but Sam Cooke's legacy? Though it was only a modest pop hit, Change was a top 10 R&B hit, and it cast a long shadow over the next half decade of black popular music. Its florid orchestrations, paired with gut bucket vocals, could be heard in the work of James Brown on his 1966 hit, It's a Man's 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 World. its social conscience reverberated through Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Moreover, countless artists covered Cook's legendary song catalog. Otis Redding, another soul legend whose life was tragically cut short, and possibly Sam Cooke's only rival for the title of greatest male voice in soul, took on several, including A Change Is Gonna Come. Aretha Franklin, whose career directly mirrored Cook's. She, too, was a preacher's child and befriended Sam on the gospel circuit back in the 50s. On her 1967 breakthrough album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, she took on her friend Sam's good times. And a change is gonna come. He said it's been a Change is gonna come. Oh, yeah. 
in the 70s, white British performers who were inspired by Cook rose to the challenge of his material. Rod Stewart, who fell in love with Cook's voice as a young man when Sam toured England, has openly emulated Cook's husky soul voice throughout his career and covered many of his classics, from Shake to Twistin' the Night Away to Bring It On Home to Me. In 1974, British folk pop artist Cat Stevens covered Sam's wistful party song Another Saturday Night and took it to number six on the Hot 100, a few positions higher than Cook's original did in 1963. And in 1980, the great R&B vocal troupe The Spinners scored one of their biggest crossover hits with a cover of Cook's Cupid that reached number four, again higher than Cook's original did in 1961. As great as all of these Sam Cooke compositions are, the song that generations of singers have returned to is A Change Is Gonna Come. It is a soul song in every sense of that word, a masterclass in soul singing that demands much of its performer, and a laying bare of its writer's soul at a vital moment in America's history. Perhaps that explains why millions of Americans heard it at last summer's live-streamed Democratic National Convention. It was performed at the DNC by the virtuosic vocalist and Oscar-winning actor Jennifer Hudson, singing from Sam Cooke's hometown of Chicago. Like so many before her, Hudson found the heart and the grit in the song at another pivotal moment in our country's history, for One Night in Chicago, and Miami, and New York, and Los Angeles, and Clarksdale, Mississippi, and in homes across the nation, Sam Cooke's words provided hope that, after a long time coming, a change was gonna come. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. 
If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi.